Hi, everybody. Welcome to Salty Politics. This week, we have a great episode with David Kochanevsky, Bloomberg reporter who's been on the trail of the Kushner companies, the Trump organization, the Mueller report. He's the guy that follows the money for all of these organizations and is able to explain and break down some very, very complicated financial data to show exactly what's been going on and how potentially financial interests and political interests and policy interests might intersect in the White House. Emily, I thought... um, the way he explained it, uh, in a nutshell, was a little was a little startling, con- considering how much of our foreign policy appears to be potentially influenced by the financial interests of a few New York real estate developers. I also I thought that was extremely fascinating, and just as a journalist, his his way of working and breaking things down and remembering such a prolific amount of information is really impressive to me, and I think I think the listeners will come out of this conversation learning something that they can go in turn talk about and apply to future conversations about politics that I think is something that is really unique about David. Coming up, David Kachinevsky of Bloomberg. Um, welcome, David Kachinevsky, Bloomberg reporter, former New York Times reporter, two-time Pulitzer Prize winning Journalist, um, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. You have been covering um, the money trail between the Trump family, the Trump organization, the White House, and the Kushners for quite a while. And um, as we're recording this today, Charlie Kushner, Charles Kushner, the father of Jared Kushner, has an op-ed in the Washington Post that I suspect is a response to uh, the story, or excuse me, the book that's coming out uh, on his family on Ivanka and on Jared, where he defends Jared's sacrifice for the country and has basically said that Jared no longer makes money um, or has anything to do with the Kushner companies uh, and talks about the purchase of 666 Fifth Avenue, which if you are in the New York area, you know is a monstrosity of a building on Sixth Avenue um, that the Kushners bought at the height of the market or Jared bought at the height of the market when his father was in prison, um, which we'll get into in a second and then really had trouble financing, was finally bailed out by a company that is owned by the Qatar government. Can you give us a little bit more color on that? Sure. Um, You know, to to understand the questions here, you have to look at how the Trump administration and Jared Kushner are different than any other previous administration. Um, Usually when someone goes into the White House, they have to take their personal business holdings and either sell them or put them in a blind trust. So someone is taking care of them, but the person who is in uh, office does not know what's going on. And that way, there's a reasonable expectation that their uh, that their actions they take in office won't be uh, muddied. They won't have an ulterior agenda um, for, to help their private wealth. The Trump administration has uh, relaxed those rules. Um, ethicists have said that they you know they are not adhering to any of the rules that have gone on for for. You know, most of the country's history, you know, for example, back in the day when Jimmy Carter was president, he had to sell his peanut farm because people said, well, he could have an agriculture bill that helps peanut farms. We don't want to have that conflict of interest. President Trump has not done that. Um, and Jared Kushner has not done that. They they say that he has recused himself uh, by, you know, not being the head of the company. And they say that he is no longer owns the assets. But a lot of them he just transferred to his family members. And if you think about that, ethicists say doesn't really mean much because if you want to 
uh, win favor with someone, you, you know, the best way other than getting them rich is to make their family members rich. So, um, you know, that is basically a distinction without a difference when they say that he has separated himself. Um, so that becomes a big issue because Jared Kushner has gigantic responsibilities in the White House. He is supposedly helping negotiate Middle East peace. He's meeting with the leaders of Saudi Arabia and uh, Qatar and Israel. He travels around the world doing business deals, talking about trade deals. And every one of those um, either has an effect on a company, could have an effect on a company that he owns, or deals with countries and investors who they are trying to get to invest in their real estate. Well, here's what's interesting to me, um, that he seems very close to Mohammed bin Salman, who is the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia, who himself has gotten into quite a bit of trouble because of uh, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post columnist, and has become almost a pariah among certain Republicans and Democrats in Congress. Uh, but yet, it seems to me that, that Jared Kushner is protecting them. As you know, Saudi Arabia is currently involved in a, in a not such a proxy is not even the right word, essentially in a war, um, with Qatar on the other side of Qatar and Yemen. And lo and behold, uh, the Qatar government, through one of its subsidiaries, seems to have bailed out this, this boondoggle of 666 Fifth Avenue. Suddenly, the attitude towards Qatar was not what it was before by the administration. Is that fair to say? Yes. Um, you know, 666 Fifth Avenue is, you know, this iconic building in the Kushner story. It was their first entry into Manhattan. Uh, you know, they, his, Jared's father, Charlie Kushner, got involved in a, a political scandal, did time in prison in New Jersey. Um, and when he got out of prison, Jared had been running the company and they wanted to kind of say goodbye, New Jersey. They were angry at Chris Christie, the prosecutor who, who put him away and who was then governor. So they wanted to like say, the hell with you, New Jersey. Um, we're going to New York. We're going to the big time. Um, and so they bought in 2007 this building 666 Fifth Avenue. Now, that was the height of the market when prices were as high as, you know, as high as they'd ever been. Um, and it was right before the crash. And, you know, buy high and sell low uh, is not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to buy low and sell high. So Jared bought this building, uh, you know, and Charlie got out. They announced it when Charlie got out of prison. Um, it was the, they paid more than any other building in the history of New York City, $1.8 billion. And they had to take out a huge amount of debt. Um, and within a year, the stock or the real estate market crashed. And so all of a sudden, here's this building with a huge mortgage on it, several mortgages, because in complicated real estate deals, you have one mortgage and then there's something called mezzanine debt. And so... You're paying a lot of bit. You're, you're paying a lot of interest. You're paying a lot of service fees, and all of a sudden the market crashes, um, and they have this big boondoggle on their on their hands, and it threatens eventually threatens to bring down the whole company. Um, so this goes on. They sell pieces of it. They refinance it. But by the time Jared gets into the White House, things are really desperate. Um, the underlying mortgage that they had was due in February 2018. It was more than a billion dollars, $1.2 billion mortgage they had to pay, and they didn't have the cash for it. So in 2015, they travel the world. This is before you know the Trump presidential campaign. They travel the world um, trying to get investors. Uh, first, they went in the U.S. They, they put on a book trying to get people to invest in it. Um, people who looked at it said there's something interesting about this book. There's these like great pictures about they're going to knock down the old building, put up a new building. It looks like something from Emerald City, but there's no numbers in it. Um, 
And so people say, how can you expect us to invest when we don't know what the financials are? They got to take it back. Now they put numbers in. People look at the numbers and they say, oh, that's why you didn't put the numbers in, because they don't make any sense. There's no way you'll get rents that high in Manhattan. This building, you're asking us to invest in something that is not going to make us money. Um, so by 2015, the Kushners are trying to go overseas to get money. They go to some of the richest people in the world, the head of uh, LMVH, the richest man in France. They go to Saudi Arabia trying to get this company, um, an investor who runs a, a real estate company that does shopping malls. They go to the Korea, South Korean um, Sovereign Wealth Fund, which is a fund that is uh, of the government's money that is invested in private projects. No one wants to take their meetings until Jared enters uh, Donald Trump's campaign. Um, by late 15, um, when Trump is starting to lead in the polls, all of a sudden people will at least take their meetings. They're not going to invest necessarily, but they're taking their meetings. And this is what has continued um, you know, after Trump's election. What is a simple way, because this is so important, but what is a simple way to explain, you know, to my friends who are like, he's just trying to take care of his family. What is a way just to, I guess, the magnitude of what this means? You know, from the very beginning of the United States, uh, the, the founding fathers uh, wanted to set a government where you didn't have kings and princes taking care of their family. And so they tried to set uh, regulations that would keep people in office um, from acting at, on their own interests instead of the public interest. And so there's been a long tradition in this country that you set your family business aside and try to look out for the best interests of the country. Well, and I think that's the questions of conflict of interest that the Kushners and the Trump administration have been in the middle of. This is what Charles Kushner, Jared Kushner's father, who is a famously private man, and as you mentioned, he is, is private for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is he had gone to prison about a decade and a half ago uh, for a variety of reasons, one of which was that he had solicited a prostitute to sleep with his brother-in-law um, and send the videotape to his sister as part of a massive family feud. But this is what Charlie Kushner wrote in the Washington Post today. He said, first, 666 Fifth Avenue was not a big financial loser. Even before we recouped most of the initial investment, the property represented a small portion of the company's overall holdings. The Kushner company's health was fine. Uh, is that accurate? Because my understanding is that they were so desperate for cash that they were trying to develop properties across the river in New Jersey and Jersey City and other locations uh, because that 666 had become such a financial boondoggle that they had no choice but to, to scrounge around anywhere they could for cash and for investment. You know, Vanity Fair magazine has called it uh, 666 possibly the worst real estate deal in the history of Manhattan. Um, you know, there were in 2011, they were uh, building was losing so much money. They couldn't pay the um, they couldn't pay the mortgage. They had to bring in a special servicer, which is like someone who you bring in when people can't pay their big commercial mortgage. Um, so the the building was teetering and it would have, you know, had huge ramifications for the entire company. They got a refinance then um, by 2015 and 2016. Again, uh, there's another mortgage due now. And, it, you know, it threatened to take the country or the company down. Um, if you look at uh, what happened once Trump was elected uh, in the transition period, Jared Kushner started reaching out to all kinds of people who he uh, who he would deal with later on once he was in the White House trying to get them to invest. And they were so desperate, they went to one company called Angbang, 
Uh, it's a Chinese investment company, but it is so closely linked to the Chinese government that the U.S. considers it almost a part of the, of the Chinese government. Like President Obama was not allowed to stay in a hotel that they own because they thought, you know, it would leave the potential of spies owning it, of spies listening into it. And they're not allowed to invest near U.S. military bases. Well, Jared goes during the transition, meets with uh, the head of Angbang um, and gets them to agree you know, a few weeks before the inauguration when he's going to be one of the most powerful people in the U.S. government and agrees to make this huge investment in 666 Fifth Avenue, a building which no one else would touch before. Not only did they agree to invest, but it was a gigantic boon to the Kushners. It would have put like $400 million of cash in their pockets. It would have given them far more ownership in the in the new building than they their equity would have deserved. They, it would have been, in the end, about $2 billion um, of you know, it was such a sweet deal about a two billion dollar favor for the Kushners. Um, they also met with the Qataris, uh, with a, a guy who used to be the head of the Qataris government fund and was the foreign minister of Qatar. And they got him to agree to put in four hundred million dollars. So, you know, they were so desperate. They were doing deals, uh, trying to do deals uh, with you know people that would obviously would have posed a conflict. Um, fortunately, when we wrote about those deals, they fell apart. You know, we wrote about the Angbang deal and. Charlie Kushner had to fly to China to try to save it, but there was so much, um, you know, so much public outcry about how how bad it was that they had to drop the deal. Why is Cutter Cutter is saying now that they were unwitting in quote unquote unwittingly had bailed out um, six sixty six that essentially through their west their huge investor in Westfield properties, which are um, the people excuse me Brookfield Asset Management. I apologize for um, who, who, who were the actual company that bailed out 666. So how is it that Cutter, which had been, as you, as you mentioned, bailing out the Kushners for a while, suddenly now claiming they were unaware of this major investment in 666? You know, that is a great mystery. There's one story that came out a few weeks ago by an unnamed source in Cutter who, who supposedly said they were shocked, shocked that their money was bailing out the Kushners. Um, but if you look at the history and the timeline of what happened, um, that doesn't make sense. And, and no one has been even in Qatar has been willing to say that on the record. Um, you know, by March 17, with the clock ticking on the Kushners, it's now less than a year till that big mortgage is due. Charlie Kushner meets with a foreign minister of Qatar in Washington. Um, Charlie says, oh, uh, he invited me. We didn't talk about investments. I couldn't have done it anyway. Um, by May. Uh, Brookfield, uh, uh, by May, you know, there's talk of there being a blockade against Qatar, um, where uh, the U.S. is backing some uh, Gulf states who wanted to to cut off Qatar financially, which was a very crippling financial thing to do to them. Um, lo and behold, by May, Brookfield Properties, uh, which which is owned 25%, the biggest shareholder in that company. The, uh, and 25% of the money is the Qatari government starts to invest with the Kushners. Um, you know, no one has ever has ever gotten to the root of it. I think that that's one of the big investigations that we're going to see play out in the next uh, over the next year. Um, you know, the Congress now that Democrats are there are subpoenaing records, and I think that over time you're going to we're going to see what happened there. Um, in most real estate deals. If you're a 25% majority partner, you're going to be involved in those big decisions. And and anyone you talk to in real estate say it would be unthinkable for them to not know it. 
um, we will find out in time. And, and what, explain this to me too, because Qatar and Saudi Arabia have had a massive diplomatic crisis for the last couple of years. Essentially, they're fighting over hegemony in the Gulf. Um, and what makes no sense to me is that Qatar has been incredibly uh, financially supportive of the Kushner family. Why is it that Jared Kushner has developed this very close relationship? What is it that the Saudis are providing to him that makes him so close to a man who has been accused very credibly of murdering um, an American resident and of causing massive, massive havoc across the Middle East? Well, if you look at the record of what has happened there, the discussions and some of the actions, it seems like there's a mix of policy and financial um, interests that merge. Um, the policy is that, you know, Jared, uh, his number one uh, task, according to President Trump, is to try to bring peace to the Middle East. And um, one of his ways of doing that is to use Saudi Arabia um, and Jordan and um, as a counterbalance to Iran. And because uh, so many people in the administration are very uh, concerned about Iran, they, they uh, walked away from the Iran nuclear deal, that Saudi Arabia has played that uh, very much to its own advantage. And, and both as a counterbalance to Iran and as uh, a part of the more complicated plan, he has to um, try to mitigate the Israeli-Palestinian issue. The Saudis would play a key part of that. So, so that's the policy piece, and that's why Jared thinks that whatever, you know, whatever eggs have to get broken to make this omelet, it's worth it. Um, but there's also financial interest. And, you know, uh, in 2017, Jared secretly went over uh, to we call this Jared's secret sleepaway, where he went to Riyadh in uh, Saudi Arabia and for four days was there with Mohammed bin Salman. Um, he was there. He came right at the end of a week where the Saudis sovereign wealth fund, which is the Saudi hundred billion dollar fund of Saudi money that the government was going to invest. There was a, a convention where all these would-be investors go there and are trying to pitch them to get the Saudis to give them money. Um, so for four days, here's this convention. Uh, Tom Barrick, who is a Trump advisor who has helped the Kushners with business before, is there. Uh, Joshua Kushner, who is Jared's brother and a co-owner of this company called Cadre, he was there. Um, and lo and behold, we, we did a story uh, about five months later that um, the cadre, a company where Jared is still an owner, and his brother Josh uh, was about to get a hundred million dollar investment from SoftBank, which is a Japanese bank which has 20% of its money comes from the Saudi government. So uh, when we wrote about that, the SoftBank walked away from that as well. Um, but it's clear that there are, their interests have aligned in both financial ways and policy ways. Do you think he's being? Um influenced because of his relationship and a relationship that goes back to his father with, with the Netanyahu government in terms of aligning himself with, uh, with the Saudis right now to the detriment of Iraq, Iran? You know, um, the Kushner family goes way back with Netanyahu. There's a, there's a story that when um, Charlie Kushner was, uh, was so close with Netanyahu that one time he stayed in the Kushner's family home uh, in New Jersey and he actually slept in Jared's bed and Jared, you know, slept somewhere else. But he was a guest in the house and he stayed in Jared's room while Jared slept somewhere else. Um, so it is an incredibly tight relationship. Um, you know, it is no secret that the, the Kushners that, uh, you know, both Jared and his father and his family have been very supportive of Israel. His father gives a lot to Israeli causes. 
has invested or has given money to some charities that are building homes on the West Bank, which is a, a very politically charged thing because uh, that makes it harder to, uh, you know, have some sort of land for peace uh, initiative with the Palestinians. Um, so there's a very close relationship there. Um, I've not talked to Jared about it. He, he claims that he's looking out for everyone's best interest, but I, I do. I know that in a lot of discussions, there are, there are those, uh, you know, on the Palestinian side who believe that there's not, he's, he's not open-minded. And, and so um, I think that the Saudi involvement in, in that plan certainly is one of the things that makes him want to do business with MBS. If you could ask Jared two questions right now about his relationship with him, what, what would they be? Uh, I mean, I would ask him two questions. One would be, how is it that you think people should view you as a neutral actor in government uh, when you have business interests that that uh, overlap with all the areas you're dealing with and and why is it that you didn't take the steps that people have taken for generations to separate that um and the second is uh, how why is it that you are willing to look the other way um, for the Saudi government and MBS's, um, uh, the evidence that looks like they were involved in the murder of Khashoggi, the Washington Post journalist? Um, other countries, other people in government, other business leaders have looked at the evidence that uh, the U.S. and the Turkish intelligence have said makes clear that he was involved in it, yet Jared and a few others have explained, tried to explain it away. Uh, how is it that you can do that? Can I get a third question? Of course. Okay. My, my third question would be, you know, the Kushner family has a fascinating history. His, um, his parents, uh, his grandparents were not just Holocaust survivors. They were heroes of the Holocaust. They helped uh, people in Belarus escape uh, the Nazis, uh, they like dug tunnels and about 85 people uh, managed to escape the Nazis. And, you know, they were the leaders of this of this escape. And uh, there's um, Holocaust museums in Russia where the, you know, the Kushner's family is honored for that. Um, his grandparents then came to this country, started building. And, you know, Jared has been in uh, an administration that has not spoken out against anti-Semitism here. Most uh Markedly after the Charlottesville um, demonstrations, at which point, um, while there while there was uh, torches and KKK members who were who were being racist, they were also threatening Jews there. And there was a synagogue where people were worshiping on a Saturday, and uh, they had to sneak out the back door because people with guns were outside and and chanting, you know, anti-Semitic chants. Um, given his family's history, um, how and that was, you know, how can he be uh, why is it that he didn't speak out when, uh, after those demonstrations, the president said there are very fine people on both sides? You know, you, you brought up Russia, which which brings me to a question that never made sense to me. During the transition, he suggested going over to the Russian embassy and having a secret back channel to um, the the Putin the Putin regime, I guess the Kremlin, and that's obviously something that the special counsel is looking into. But has he ever provided an answer for that? Has anybody actually specifically ever asked him what could possibly be going through his head where he wants to evade the United States intelligence services and others and deal directly with our number one geopolitical foe? 
Um, you know, Jared was asked that uh, when he was uh, interviewed by the House. Hang on, let me start over again. Jared would ask that when he was interviewed by congressional investigators uh, in 2017, and he put a statement out before he testified and said he was just it was just a getting to know you session where I, I was trying to meet other foreign leaders. I was going to be involved in international um, diplomacy, so I wanted to meet them. Um, the problem with that statement is that that's not what the Russians say happened. Um, during the transition, he had two meetings, one with Ambassador Kislyak, the Russian ambassador, um, and General Flynn, the, who was the national security advisor, who lasted like 24 days before being fired. He was with him. He then uh, had a second meeting with uh, a man named Gorkov, who's the head of VTB, a bank, a government bank that is basically directed by someone who Putin directly appoints. Um, and Jared said we were just talking about uh, you know, about diplomacy and Putin's people said, no, we were talking about business opportunities in the United States. Uh, you know, one of the big questions that we have and as yet unanswered is, did they talk about investments in real estate, perhaps things that could involve the Kushner holdings? Um, we don't know that. Uh, the Kushners have never given a satisfactory answer. Um, so I, I do think that, um, you know, again, because Jared's business interest and his refusal to take the steps others have taken to separate his, himself from his business, it leaves those questions open. And I think in the coming, you know, the Mueller report will probably answer some of it, hopefully. And if not, there'll be congressional investigations, and over time, we'll get a better sense of what happened. And what's fascinating to me, to me about the VT Bank um, scandal, which I assume somebody did a background briefing um, for Jared Kushner on that bank, but what VT Bank in Russian stands for, it's Bank, which means literally foreign trade bank. Um, yep. So this is not, this is not, a, <laughs> this is not a company, company that's giving out mortgages to people in St. Petersburg, right? I mean, they're- Not a lot of gray area. Right, I mean, the, the name says it all. Um, and <laughs> for, I assume um, that there's somebody in, in the Kushner orbit who does some sort of um, background research for Jared before he meets with anybody and, and for him not to understand what the purpose of that bank was and for him not to, as, as an investor himself, not to, for us not to appreciate what the alleged purpose of that meeting was makes no sense, especially when the Trump organization um, and one of the Trump kids said that, that the Russians make up a large cross-section of their investments. I think that's something Donald Trump Jr. said in the last decade or so. So, it seems to me that he knew exactly what he was getting into meeting with them, and yet he was doing it as somebody who was about to go into the White House, was working in transition, had a massive hand in transition to the point where he was instrumental in firing Chris Christie, the head of the transition. Um, what do we make of that? I mean, does this even remotely pass the laugh test, and how is it that the Southern District or the Eastern District of, of New York has not yet made any recommendations based on that? You know, I, I do think that's one of the things because it's directly involved with questions about the campaign and transitions uh, involvement with Russia it's that Mueller's people are taking a look at. It. And um, so I think, you know, the Southern District and Eastern District would stand back and let Mueller do whatever he's going to do and then act, you know, afterward. Um, and, you know, he, he has never given a, an, an answer that that. Uh, seems plausible. I mean, the answer he gave to Congress, which is the only one he's ever given, was seemed, you know, um, it, it didn't align with what 
that was known publicly about that bank, and it didn't align with what the Russians said happened at that bank. And there was actually one other secret contact with Russian investors that he was part of. Uh, during the transition, Jared, Steve Bannon, and Flynn met with the Emiratis. Um, the Emiratis set up this meeting in the Seychelles Islands, like way out in the middle of nowhere, where Eric Prince, who was a, an informal advisor for the government, uh, for the for the Trump people met while they were there. They met with someone from the Russian Direct Investment Fund, which is like that doesn't even pretend to be a bank. It's just this is the Russian government going to invest in things. And Jared was one of the people who helped set that meeting up. Um, so that's another big mystery that we're waiting for the Mueller report to help shed some light on. Do we think the Mueller report is going to result in any more indictments or do we think he just whatever he finds, he refers to law enforcement either in the Southern District or the Eastern District or in Washington or, or, or Virginia or wherever it is? It sounds to me like it seems to me that he's he's wrapping up and, and he's not planning on indicting anybody certainly closer to the president than somebody like a Flynn or a Manafort at this point. It's it is a big mystery. You know, there were a time a few months ago where Donald Trump Jr. himself was telling people I expect to be indicted um, because he had said things to Congress uh, about the meeting with the Russian spies in uh, June 2016 that were later proven to be untrue. And so uh, the thinking was uh, six months ago that it looked like Don Jr. would be indicted um, that no one hears that anymore. Um, and there, you know, so there's questions about whether, you know, what's going to happen there. Jerome Corsi is like a right wing, um, uh, you know, right wing fabulist who like makes up kind of, uh, you know, makes up untrue political hit stories. Um, he was involved in the whole effort between Roger Stone and the campaign to get in touch with WikiLeaks because WikiLeaks had the hacked Russian emails. There's a question as to whether he might be indicted because there was one point where he had been offered a plea agreement and he turned it down. Um, the other person is Eric Prince, the one I just mentioned, who met, um, you know, who was a very close advisor. His his sister is Betsy DeVos, who is the education the head of the Department of Education, gigantic Trump donors. He had um, had that secret meeting in the Seychelles Islands and then said things uh, which were not which later were turned out to be not true to Congress and lying to a Congress is a crime. So that's another you know, potential uh, indictment that people were waiting to see if that's going to happen. Um, you know, in the last couple of weeks, and I have to say Mueller is, uh, Mueller runs a very tight ship, like there are no leaks from Mueller's world. So um, everyone is kind of guessing from the outside. Um, I do think that regardless of what Mueller does, there will definitely be other investigations that are, um, that will come out of that, that uh, other prosecutors offices will pick up on um you know if you looked uh, a couple of weeks ago when uh, gerald nadler the uh, democrat from new york uh, put out uh requests for documents from 81 people um who were who were involved in the trump campaign and the trump administration and had potentially had dealt with russia um on the top of all those lists of questions they said you know please give this information to us and or to the Southern District of New York, which appears to be, you know, um, the federal prosecutor's office is going to kind of have the baton handed off to them. And I think if you think about Michael Cohen, the president's former lawyer in the Stormy Daniels, um, the Stormy Daniels case, he, you know, had said that he has reported things about insurance fraud and bank fraud by the Trump organization, the president's businesses. Uh, you know, that since it's not related to Russia, 
that would not be investigated by Mueller, but it would be investigated by other prosecutors' offices. Um, this kind of goes to on a little bit of a different subject, but to your reporting, you deal with so much information and such in-depth stories. How do you, in your work ethic, not get overwhelmed and kind of follow all of these? Because in so many of your stories, you just lay it out so well, but you're dealing with so much information and so many tax numbers and, and, and detailed things. How do you, your process, not go crazy? You know, I've spent years writing about complicated business uh, dealings. You know, I did Apple's taxes and GE's taxes and Goldman Sachs when they found a way to rig the aluminum market. So I'm used to doing big, complicated cases, but this is something all its own. And, you know, people ask, what's it like? And I think the best way to describe it is, you know, the game we all like to play where we get the puppy to chase after the laser pointer. <laughs> this is this is like being a puppy, like in a laser tag arcade, because there's hundreds of things where you're all chasing it and you get what you can. And then you run over there and there's 10 more over here. Um, so I do think, you know, when this story started, those of us who cover it, it, you know, it starts as a sprint and then you realize, whoa, it's going to be a marathon but each one is its own little thing. So you try to run it like a relay race. And, you you know, I'm lucky that at Bloomberg we have a big team of a lot of good people. So, you know, I'll try to run on this one as long as I can. And when I need to collapse, someone else will they'll hand the baton to someone else. And we have three or four different teams going like that. But it's, it is unlike anything that I've ever seen. Why do you think Ivanka was not one of the people that was targeted by the, by the original Nadler document request? I'm sorry, by the original Nadler document request. You had, you had talked about that Nadler, uh, Gerald Nadler had, had sent out requests for documents for, for a variety of people, including Jared Kushner, uh, but not Ivanka Trump. Why do you think that is? Right. I know the, the I mean, that was one. There were two omissions that jumped out to me. One was Ivanka and one was Kellyanne Conway. Right. Why? Why would she not be asked questions? Because she was in the middle of a lot of this and was a very top advisor and privy to a lot of conversations. Um, you know, uh, we all try to play criminologist and say things. I think Nadler afterward said that they aren't finished sending things out yet, so maybe there are more. Um, you know, there are speculation all over the place that maybe, you know, when people aren't named that they could be cooperating. Um, but Nadler seemed to try to throw a little bit of cold water on that by saying they still have more things to send out, but there were so many they wanted to get the first batch out, you know, Excellent. when they could. All right, we're going to let you go. Thank you so, Great. so much for joining us. Good luck okay. in the story. If the Mueller report drops, we can't wait to read all about it. Thanks. Thanks yeah. so much. Thank you. Bye. Okay, bye. David was a fantastic conversation, Julie. I don't know what the highlight was for me, but what about you? Um, you know, the whole 666 Fifth Avenue debacle... Just to clearly understand the dire straits that the Kushner organization was in, um, having bought, and not, not unlike a lot of people, having bought at the top of the market and then being underwater in their mortgage. Listen, I mean, theirs was in the billions as opposed to the hundreds of thousands, but how many people do we know who bought at the height of the market in 2006, 2007, and then couldn't refinance their home and, and couldn't afford to pay their mortgage or pay off their mortgage? Um, so I sympathize with it. What, what is interesting to me is how a micro economic story like that turns into a geopolitical <laughs> that that debacle. was what was so fascinating and it just it it made it so this guy is the finder middle east peace and 
he has all of these deals happening. Why are we waiting for the Middle East peace plan? I feel like Jared was going to bring peace to the Middle East um, repeatedly over the last two years, and, and, and yet I don't see one. You know, it actually drives me a little crazy, um, and I don't want to go off on yet another salty tangent because this is not what's making me salty this week, but what makes me salty every week is this notion that, oh, well, no, the Trump administration um, is great to the Jewish community because, you know, they moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Okay, that's great. Meanwhile, you have people on, good people on both sides, some of whom are chanting, Jews will not replace us, as David discussed, um, outside a synagogue in Charlottesville and, and forcing people in the Jewish community to flee out the back, and, and the president doesn't condemn that outright and says there are good people on both sides. But hey, at least we moved some real estate from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. So congratulations, Jared Kushner. If you've done nothing else, you flew to Jerusalem, you stood next to a bunch of ministers, some of whom have said incredibly vile anti-Semitic things, by the way, um, and opened up an embassy in Jerusalem for an exchange, getting absolutely nothing out of the Netanyahu government in doing that. But that's neither here nor there. I get that you guys are good family friends. God bless. Um, I, for one, really hope Bibi loses in the next couple of weeks and we have a different sense of leadership in Israel. Well, continuing your salt train, what is making you salty this week? So here's what's making me salty. Um, we have a president of the United States who is trashing John McCain, Senator McCain, who has been dead for nearly seven months. And uh, I say the following. I um, was never a humongous fan of Senator McCain uh, politically during the course of his life. Um, those of you who watched Outnumbered may recall that Megan McCain, when she was on Outnumbered with me, um, would sometimes get upset with me when I would, when I would criticize her father from a policy perspective, and, and I thought that was fine to do. Um, and frankly, I, I think it's, it's still fine to criticize people's policy positions after they've passed away. Um, you know, Richard Nixon, not that I'm comparing John McCain at all to Richard Nixon, I'm just using him as an example of somebody who passed away, um, who we have no problem criticizing him for his policy positions, or Ronald Reagan, or, or, or Lyndon Johnson, or John F. Kennedy, whoever. I mean, there, there are plenty of founding fathers. There are plenty of people who were, who were patriots who passed away who some or others of us may not agree with their policies. What I find completely bonkers and off the hook and seriously makes me worry for the mental health if or if not the mental health, the maturity level of the toddler in chief that we have in the White House, is that he's criticizing John McCain standing at Annapolis, um, which is crazy. I mean, it's insane. And, and I really don't care what your grades were in college, but by the way, Donald Trump does. I mean, he certainly trashed Obama for having his grades, whatever they were, and John McCain for his grades. But yet we come to find out from Michael Cohen that he's gone out of his way to make sure that nobody ever reveals his grades um, in college, uh, which, again, I really don't care what they are, but I suspect they weren't very good since, judging by his Twitter feed, he can't write um, and is semi-illiterate. So that's, I mean, that's insane. Listen, you can criticize John McCain's um, policies, but, but for the president of the United States to spend his bully pulpit time trashing a dead man is awful. And then what's even more awful is, of course, the dopes who take their orders from him and their, their directives from him start sending horrible things to Cindy McCain and to Meghan McCain, people who are still grieving over their father. 
it's just absurd. And, you know, I, I mentioned that on Twitter, and you know, we've got these people saying, oh, well, you know, John McCain was awful. He wasn't a patriot. He was a traitor because he turned over the, the, the Mueller, sorry, the, uh, the dossier, the Steele dossier to the feds. Well, actually, what John McCain received was information that made him question whether the president of the United States was compromised. And though the president of the United States was of his own party, he didn't release it. He didn't go and meet the press. He didn't talk about it. He sent it to the FBI. He made sure that law enforcement saw it. That is the definition of a patriot to me. And, you know, to sit there and malign somebody for doing the right thing, especially when it's the right thing that might damage a member of his own party, to me is the definition of a patriot. And I say that again as somebody who on policy disagreed with John McCain on a lot, but I never questioned in 2008 his patriotism or his commitment to this country. Um, and I do question the sanity of the man who is using his bully pulpit to just completely malign a dead man whom he can't hurt. I mean, John McCain is dead. It doesn't really matter. He, he's, he's gone. It doesn't matter to him what, what Donald Trump is saying about him. But what does matter is the fact that you've got all of his followers going after um, Cindy McCain and Meghan McCain and members of the McCain family, and I think that's disgusting. I mean, they deserve better than that. They are still among the living. Let them mourn in peace. You want to complain about John McCain's vote on the Affordable Care Act? I guess that's, that's, that's fair game if you want, if you're, if you're Donald Trump. But, but to go after him on personal issues and on his patriotism, I think is absolutely disgusting. And a piece for a man who said that he did not respect John McCain because John McCain was captured um, as a POW. So that's what's making me salty. It's not even making me salty. It's just making me disgusted and depressed, and I can't wait for this guy to go, to go away and get the mental health treatment that he needs, hopefully away from the White House. A woman to that. Um, so what is making me salty this week is the juxtaposition between gun reform in New Zealand. Uh, less than a week after the horrific attack at the mosques, they are banning assault rifles. And we have had God knows how many attacks since 20 years since Columbine and so many in between then and we haven't passed anything. And this is when over 90% of Americans want or approve of universal background checks. So the fact that it took New Zealand six days to do action and we can't and continue to have these horrific attacks happen on our soil is making me so frustrated and so angry because this is just as much of a national security issue as anything. Well, and, and, and the response to that from some quarters is, well, New Zealand doesn't have a Second Amendment. Uh, you know, that's true. <laughs> what New Zealand has is a rational response to banning <laughs> weapons of uh, as much of weapon, as many weapons of mass destruction as nuclear weapons. I mean, by the way, these semi-automatic assault weapons have killed more people than nuclear weapons have in the history of the world. So. To me, they're, they're clearly weapons of mass destruction. And um, the Constitution, you know, can be amended. I mean, slavery was once legal in this country. Um, women did not have a franchise um, in this country. We respond to events rationally. And New Zealand suffered a horrific and just awful um, attack. And lo and behold, responded rationally. This is the takeaway. We could take the example of, you know, John McCain acting with integrity and what's best for this country, and we can take the example of New Zealand doing what's best for their country. And <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what's not making me salty. I'll tell you what's making me happy. Um, daylight savings time and 
Yesterday was the first day of spring, and I am so happy that summer is around the corner and better days are coming, hopefully. I know, and I'm ready to just not be perpetually cold. Yeah, and you're a big runner, so for you, that's actually great not to be having to run in the dark and in the freezing cold, right? I know. Looking ahead. All right, this was a great episode. All right. Thanks, everybody. See you soon.